Okay, hockey, it is that time of the... Spit test? Yeah, it's time for that spit test. Are you ready? Uh. A spit test. Every week, one morning before school, but never before coffee, I have my five-year-old drool into a small plastic container. Why? Well... This is how we make sure that you don't get sick or maybe are sick and don't even know it. So you don't have COVID. It's a COVID test. Uh, uh, how old is <laughs> It's required by his school that every student every week get tested. And it's not fun. Okay, ready? Here we go. All right, fishy face. Oh, I'm not a thing. Keep going. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao. It's Tuesday, September 14th. School is back in session. For some kids, it's been more than a year of Zoom school. There's no doubt that this taste of normalcy feels like a win. But it's also terrifying because this kind of feels like one big experiment and we're all watching with bated breath wondering, how is it going to go? Because the risk is real, especially with the Delta variant. More kids are getting sick. Most kids can't even get vaccinated yet. And as parents, there's really only so much we can do to make sure our kids are safe. But once they get out the door and into the classroom, it's kind of beyond our control. Everybody has it above their nose and up their mouth? Yeah, that's All right. Mouth Go. That's where your mouth goes. You got it. This is a kindergarten classroom in Virginia, and you can hear the teacher is trying to make wearing a mask fun. That's going to show me that you're ready. AJ, mask up. In this school district, masks are required. But in a quarter of the 200 largest school districts, they're not. And that's why there's a lot of concern that all of these different rules and the vague federal guidelines just aren't going to be enough to protect kids. Some schools seem like they're doing okay so far. They've had cases here and there, but they kind of know how to deal with it or it hasn't been too many cases. Yasmin Abutalib is a health policy reporter for The Post, and she's been looking at this patchwork of school policies and what effect they're having on kids. They've got pretty decent testing programs, so they're identifying them early. New York City schools just went back on Monday, so that's going to be another closely watched one. The Southern schools went back much earlier, and those are some of the places you see struggling the most because in a lot of those states, including Florida and Texas, they are not following CDC guidelines, including sort of basic public health measures like universal masking and social distancing. So in those schools, you've already seen thousands of kids have COVID cases or thousands already have to quarantine because of exposure. So this really depends on where you're looking and what types of guidelines these districts are choosing to follow. So Yasmin, for the Biden administration, getting kids back in school has been this really big priority. But what have they actually done so far to make this happen and make it happen safely? 
So it has been a big priority of the administration since Biden was on the campaign trail in his first 100 days in office. He said he wanted a majority of kids back in school. It should be a national priority to get our kids back into school and keep them in school. And now, of course, we've got most kids back in school. But most of the discussions about what guidelines needed to be in place for schools from the CDC and what precautions schools needed to take took place before the Delta variant took hold, which of course has caused a very different set of problems and challenges in the country because it's more than twice as transmissible as the strain of the virus that was going around when they were writing the guidelines. When we talked to White House and CDC officials, they said that they were confident that these guidelines would still be enough with Delta. Things like universal masking, social distancing, vaccinations for everyone who's eligible, so all teachers and staff and students 12 and up, contact tracing, testing protocols. They said the schools that follow these guidelines are going to be okay. They'll probably have cases here and there, but hopefully if they aggressively contact trace, they can manage them and prevent them from becoming big outbreaks. But what we found in our reporting is that some of these things are much more difficult in practice. So one thing we focused on in particular was testing. So even though schools were given billions of dollars to set up testing programs, to screen students, to try to prevent cases from spreading out of control, our colleagues surveyed 20 of the largest school districts and found that only four of them have the sort of broad screening programs, meaning you're testing asymptomatic students. So most schools that were surveyed are not doing the kind of testing that experts say is necessary to keep schools as safe as possible. But aside from testing, does it seem like schools by and large are listening to the guidance that's coming from the Biden administration and coming from the CDC in terms of their guidelines for, you know, having a safe school year? It really depends on the school district. You do have schools particularly in the Northeast, on the West Coast, you see the Los Angeles Unified School District being the most aggressive of the school districts in terms of the safety protocols it's putting in place, trying to follow the CDC guidelines. But one of the challenging things with schools is that the CDC can put out guidelines all at once, but ultimately they are probably going to listen to their local and state health authorities more than the federal government. A lot of schools rely on the CDC guidance for their framework to understand what they need in place, and it often informs what state and local governments do. But at the end of the day, this is really a local decision. No one has to follow the CDC guidelines by law. They're just guidelines. So schools can follow them if they want, or they can do their own thing, or their state or local governments can advise something differently. So that's why you see this patchwork of policies all over the country and the policies that schools are putting in place so dependent on where people live. In your reporting, what have you found is the case for school districts that are doing, you know, the best that they can when it comes to following the guidelines, when it comes to making sure that people are wearing masks, making sure that people are social distancing, contact tracing, testing when possible? I mean, how is the school year going for those school districts? It's hard to tell because it's still so early for most of those schools. They've only been in school in a lot of cases for a week or two, or in the case of New York City, they just started on Monday. So time will tell with these districts, but they do seem to be having significantly fewer problems than the schools that don't have any safety precautions in place at all. They're doing much better than schools, for instance, that don't have mask mandates or schools that don't have sort of regimented social distancing. We know it's a big challenge 
challenge for lots of schools, especially the ones with lots of students, to follow the CDC's social distancing guidelines. It just might not be practical in some cases. But for the ones that are trying, they have cases. There's still some confusion around quarantining and who exactly needs to be quarantined and for how long. Is there a point at which they should consider shutting down their entire classroom and going to remote for two weeks if a certain number of students get infected? Those are all questions that aren't answered by any federal guidance. And that's where we also saw some confusion among policies and talking to experts who are advising these schools. But for the most part, they tend to be doing better than the schools that don't have the basic safety measures in place at all. Does the federal government have guiding and testing in the case of a positive test in a school? There is guidance. So the CDC will define who qualifies as a close contact of a student who's been infected. But they loosen that definition for this school year because they say that they learned lessons from last year. They didn't want to be overly cautious and send kids home unnecessarily. So for instance, if a kid was exposed to someone who was infected, but both kids were masked and at least three feet apart the entire time, the CDC says that other child does not necessarily need to quarantine. The CDC's guidelines may not always work. For example, we spoke with Jenny Hunter, a mom in Washington, D.C., whose daughter was exposed to COVID in the classroom. But because her daughter wasn't considered a close contact, she wasn't notified. We paid extra for like the fast PCR COVID test because we thought we wanted to go back to school the next day. Um, And it was positive. I don't know why I was so surprised, but I was really surprised. The confusion in particular is around at what point does an entire classroom need to go home because some percentage of kids have gotten infected. No one really knows the answer to that. And people are sort of trying to figure that out as you go along. I don't blame them really for not telling us about the positive result in her class if that was what the you know criteria were supposed to be for what's a close contact. Um, but then after she tested positive, They quarantined her whole class and then actually the whole grade. And so they're doing some amount of virtual school. So those are some questions that the federal government did not answer. And they say it's because one of their goals this year was to keep as many kids in the classroom as possible. They didn't want classrooms to keep having to go from in-person to remote to in-person to remote because that's so disruptive. But that is a question that some people have said they would like answered and they just don't know at what point it's not safe to have the classroom open anymore. The Delta variant is so contagious. Is there more that the Biden administration could be doing right now when it comes to schools and safety? One thing that we heard from experts is that although the CDC guidance says that schools should be testing and doing what's called screening testing, which means you test people who could be infectious, even though you have no reason to believe they might be, so they're not showing symptoms, they don't really provide a toolkit or a set of instructions for the type of testing program a school should have set up. So what we found was that unless a school partnered with an outside organization that really knows this issue well or already has a lot of connections, they didn't set up the types of programs in general that experts say is needed. You have something like the LA Unified School District that is testing every student once a week, regardless of vaccination status. And that's one program that experts point to as a really great thing. Not every district has the resources or the personnel to do that kind of thing. 
but we found that some schools were only testing 10% of students or they had an opt-in program. So you had to actively decide you wanted to be tested if you were going to participate. And there were a lot of parents and teachers and staff and experts who say that's just not sufficient. You could miss a lot of cases that way. So President Biden has addressed this in the last several days. He called on schools to use the money appropriated by Congress to set up robust testing programs. He's talked about increasing the number of tests available across the country, including rapid tests. Um, And he's urged vaccinations for teachers and staff and students 12 and up. And he's called on governors to mandate this. We know that if schools follow the science and implement the safety measures like testing, masking, adequate ventilation systems would be provided the money for, social distancing, and vaccinations, then children can be safe from COVID-19 in schools. So the Biden administration is well aware of the challenge and the hurdles that schools face, but I think there is still a desire by many schools for more guidance. That said, it's important to note that some schools frankly don't care what the CDC has to say and say they're going to look at what their state and local health department says. So it really depends on where you are in the country. After the break, Yasmin breaks down what the risk is for kids right now and why the Biden administration is pushing for schools to reopen anyway. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So, Yasmin, why is sending kids back to school a priority for the Biden administration, despite the risks? So even though there are a lot of risks this year, in some ways more than there were last year, although we didn't have vaccinations last year, given the contagiousness of this variant, there's pretty universal agreement among experts, among parents, among teachers and staff and administration officials that kids need to be back in the classroom, that after a year and a half of remote learning, it was terrible for most families. It meant that parents couldn't go into work or even couldn't get their work done at home. There were studies that showed it took an enormous toll on children's mental health, that they missed out on academic and social developments that they can only get in the classroom, that the students of the country just could not sustain another year or another few months of remote learning, that it had been too detrimental already. And it was important for other aspects when you're looking at the whole picture, that the risk was, especially if they believe schools follow these CDC guidelines, they think they can do this pretty safely with minimal risk and one that's perhaps worth the trade 
trade-off of not keeping kids at home, that it was just too important to not keep kids at home anymore because the consequences of that are not just on the students, it's on families where parents can't really get to work or maybe don't have childcare, making sure that kids have access to school lunches. Remote learning was not considered a success. It was something that some people felt had to be done given the risks of the pandemic, but the toll that it took was too big to keep going with it. And you saw in in recent speeches the president has given where him and First Lady Jill Biden, who is also a teacher, have celebrated schools going back to in-person and the fact that they're delivering on this promise that they've made. We are going to safely open schools. And that they know that remote learning took a huge toll on students and families. And this is a real victory to be able to have students actually going back to the classroom. If we look at the numbers, Yasmin, can you describe what is the situation like for kids right now and how bad is it? That's a really important question. And I think it factors into some of the anxiety people are feeling about schools reopening right now. So what we do know is that children, especially young kids, tend to not endure the worst effects of this disease, that even when they do get infected, in the vast majority of cases, it tends not to be severe illness, which is encouraging. And these are, of course, the kids that aren't eligible for vaccines right now. But there are some worrying trends in cases among children right now. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, throughout the pandemic, children have comprised about 15% of COVID cases. For the week that ended September 2nd, that went up to 27%. So children are comprising a growing number of COVID cases right now. There are a number of reasons for that that experts cite as possibilities. One is a lot of the most vulnerable people are now vaccinated against COVID. So they're not getting infected as at high of rates as they were earlier in the pandemic. It's unclear how much of the increase is due to school reopenings. But we have heard just anecdotally increasing cases of pediatric intensive care units filling up of children suffering and having to go to the hospital. So there is a lot of anxiety because Delta does pose a greater threat to children and their families than earlier variants of the virus. You know, I think that there's something to be said about the start of the school year and how it's this kind of joyous refresh and restart for a lot of families and for a lot of kids and especially for like 18 months or maybe a year or however long it's been for families of remote learning and kind of living through this pandemic, having this like little morsel of normalcy. But I think in the back of parents' minds, in the back of of staff, of teachers and school districts is, you know, at what point do we turn the ship around? At what point do they call it and say, too many kids are getting sick, maybe this is not a sustainable thing? And I'm wondering if there's been any indication from the Biden administration or from the CDC about what that tipping point might be for when, you know, they might change guidance on, you know, whether in-person learning is just too risky right now. That's such a great question, Lexi, and one that we spent a lot of time trying to answer. And what we found was that the Biden administration has not provided that point at which you say 
it's too risky, we have to shut down the classroom or just too many kids in the school are infected, it's time to shut down the school. And they actually told us that they did not provide that metric because the goal is to keep kids in school. And the hope is that if you follow the CDC guidelines, you can keep the kids who don't qualify as a close contact in the classroom. But when I spoke with one expert who's advising Prince George's County schools in Maryland, She said she's gotten that question over and over from teachers. At what point do I need to shut down my classroom? At what point can I not have my classroom open? And this expert told the teachers, when you have one positive case, you need to shut down your class. That's that's the point at which you have to do it. Of course, there's not universal agreement about that. This is really going to depend on the district you live in, on the experts a particular school or set of teachers is talking to. And it's one of the real points of confusion and anxiety of the school year. What is the appropriate amount of risk we can take? We know that there will be cases. What level of risk are people willing to live with because it's important to have kids back in the classroom? And at what point is it going to become too much for people? I don't know that we know the answer to that yet. I think a lot of that is gonna play out this fall across the various districts all over the country. Yasmin Abutalib covers health policy for The Post. Today's show is mixed by Renny Svarnovsky and produced by Savvy Robinson, Jordan Marie Smith, and Emma Talkoff. Mariah Belingit and Hannah Natanson contributed reporting. On tomorrow's show, Martine will be back with a conversation we taped about a barrier to accessing abortion that we don't often think about. That is doctors. Doctors who might not talk to women about the option of abortion. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.